morning. Matthew 9, verse 36. And we will look at our third message in our series on prayer called The Prince and the Pauper. Matthew 9, verse 36. When Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. And God, this morning we come... As paupers to you, our prince, knowing indeed, (laughs) Lord, we want to learn how to pray. We want to learn to see your heart, to pursue your presence, to glorify your preeminence in our praying. And now this morning, Father, you have said that there is a harvest out there full of souls to be reaped into your Father's house. If only there were laborers to go gather them. And so we want to pray for those laborers to go. And God, we pray for those laborers who are reaping now. We pray for youth call in Uganda. God, that you encourage their hearts, that you strengthen their weaknesses, that you unify their differences. And Father, we pray for Ignite and Michelle with that group that you would help her overcome the challenges of leading a worship team in another culture. God, we pray for the various church plants that we know in our midst. Um, We pray for Jeff and his church and that you provide for his needs. God, we pray for Greg in Uganda. You bless his ministry out there. And we also pray for Richard Morris, Lord. God, we offer all these people up to you, that you meet them and you glorify yourself through them. In your son's name we pray, amen. So, as I said, this is our third message now in our prayer series called The Prince and the Pauper. The reason for the title, The Prince and the Pauper, is because when it comes to prayer, we need to realize our position before God. We are needy, poor, destitute paupers, (laughs) and God is the prince. He's got everything at his fingertips. He's the creator of the universe, and we're the finite, temporary human beings. And realizing this relationship when we come to God teaches us to pray. I think that's the first step we need to realize is who we are and who he is. And the rest almost seems to take care of itself from there. So we saw the first message was um, how the reason that we pray is to glorify God through our humility and weakness by asking for things we can't meet on ourselves. So we learned that prayer is the praise of the prince through the pleadings of the pauper. Then last week we looked at the tabernacle as a model prayer for pursuing the presence of God and saw that prayer is the pauper's pursuit of the prince's presence. This morning, I want to look at prayer as an extension of the compassion of Jesus to others. And we will see that prayer is the passion of the prince for people penetrating the pauper. 
So the passion of the prince that he has for people penetrates into me through prayer. That's where we're going to go with this. Now, um, there are times when sudden tragedy causes us to stop and reflect our lives and the way that we are treating other people. Those moments where you hear something, see something, something happens, and it makes you step back from the way you've been living and treating people and realize, where am I? Why did I never care for them? This message was birthed off of such a circumstance. About a year ago, actually January of this year, um, I received very, very shocking and startling news. And it wasn't anything I had never heard before. But for whatever reason, this news hit at home instantly in a way I had never felt this kind of news hit at home. And it really rocked me and made me step back and think, so what is my purpose around the people I'm with? And do I have the compassion that Jesus had when he saw the crowds. Here's the news. Orange County Register, January 14th, 2011. Lake Forest. A 23-year-old woman died after another vehicle collided with her car in Lake Forest intersection Friday, authorities said. I will bleep her name out for her privacy. Um, she, 23, of Anaheim, was driving her Hyundai westbound on Bank Parkway, Bake Parkway, excuse me, when she made a left-hand turn onto North Point Drive, the sheriff reported. At the time, a man driving a 2007 Toyota Tacoma was driving eastbound on Blake, on Bake, when he struck her car on the passenger side, the officer said. Quote, it appears one of the vehicles ran a red light, causing the vehicles to collide in the intersection the sheriff said. It is still unclear which vehicle ran the red light. Well, she was taken to Mission Hospital where she was pronounced dead, officials said. Typical news story. We hear this all the time. Somebody dies in an intersection, a a head-on collision, and we even see it driving down the street. But when I heard of this, (laughs) it, it definitely rocked me and hit home because this was a girl I worked with. And it totally took our whole company by storm. Um, it didn't work, she didn't work with our company. This was, I, li- I lived down in Orange County for three years, um, not too long ago. And I worked at an attorney service. And if you're familiar with the attorney service industry, basically you're a bunch of cur- couriers taking paper for attorneys down to the courthouse. And there's maybe five companies represented in the courthouse. And... Um, Though she was with another company, you work side by side all the time. So you, you feel like they're all, even though they're competitors, they're all still family. And um, this was a real person to me. And it was one of the first times I saw news like that and connected with somebody I knew. I mean, this was a real person involved. Um, I, I saw the things that made her laugh. I, I saw the frustration she would have with clients when they made her job impossible. Attorneys are never like that, let me tell you. Um, 
I, I, she worked with her brother and sister, so you saw that like intimate relationship she had with family. You saw um, the excitement when she shared about her weekend and, and the fun that she had, um, usually doing things I wouldn't do. Um, you got to know, you know, her smell, her, the sound of her voice, the tone, uh, what turned her on, what didn't, because, you know, you would sit with her in line and stuff. Um, you even got used to knowing she was around when you smelled uh, cigarette smoke as she came in from her break. Just all those things. This is a real person. And, and worse, this is a person who God loved. And it was a soul with an eternal destiny. I think the reason why this, this news was stunning and soul-searching to me was because I knew that she was a soul with an eternal destiny whom God loved... And I didn't know exactly where she stood with God. The fact I didn't know maybe says enough. But I never had, in all those moments, those months working side by side as competitors, I never had that care, if you'll call it, to find out why are you where you are? Why do you party every weekend? I mean, what are you seeking? Just never found out the heart behind. I just, that's who she is, kind of, you know, we always kind of judge them. That's their place. Okay, fine. But then all of a sudden, that person whom you, you just kind of avoided most of the time because they find out you're a pastor, which makes everything go downhill real fast. They no longer talk to you, it seems like. Um, just like you start to sidestep them. And then when something like this happens, boom, dead suddenly, you, you step back and say, what did I do? How is it that now, gone, suddenly vanished, and I have to sit here and wonder. I think I know where she is, but how did that not move my heart before death? How come now it rocks me? And to think that person that you know well is just gone, and not only gone, but maybe in a place that you don't want to imagine the experience of. I think that's why it really hit me. Someone my age... Someone I saw every day knew God loved her, but didn't find out if she loved God. This isn't stuff to mess around with. Jesus described hell as a real place, and he described it as a place of outer darkness, a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth, a fiery furnace, a place where the worm dies not and the fire is not quenched, an eternal fire, a place of torment, a place of no rest, and a lake of fire and sulfur. So whatever it is like, those descriptions from both Matthew and Revelation describe something intense. So what I want to ask, Christian, is when we see people on the streets, when we see them file in the stores, when we see them filling the stadiums, how are we moved? How are we stirred, if at all? Are we like Jesus, who looked over Jerusalem and began to weep for Jerusalem? Or are we like Paul, who said that he was willing to sell his soul in order to see his own kinsmen be saved? 
Or are we as unmoved as a mountain, as cold as a glacier, or as hard as a stone? Do we care? Are we concerned? And do we have compassion? In our passage, we see that when Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion for them. And so what I want to look in this passage is first at the compassion of Jesus, how he saw the crowds and why he saw them that way, and then secondly, the commission of the Christian, what he is supposed to do and how he's supposed to do it. So the compassion of Jesus for the crowd, the commission of the Christian for the crowd. So the, the compassion of Jesus. It says there in verse 37a, 36a, when Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion on them. I want you to notice what it doesn't say. When Jesus saw these crowds, these crowds he had been healing, these needy, sick sinning, desperate paupers, when he saw them, he did not have condemnation for them. He did not look at them and start to judge them and assess where they are at. I mean, how, how judgmental the human eye can be. That's me. You see the crowd and you think, Ugh, I can tell where they've been. I know what their lifestyle is like. Why don't they just get it? Why did they hate God so much? And all these condemning thoughts just flood through the mind and through the heart. To put it directly in relationship to the story that shocked me of the death of the girl, this was one of, um, I read the article on the OC Register on the website, and um, of course, if you look at news on the website, everybody blogs their comments about the article underneath, and this was one amazingly condemning blogger. Stan483 wrote some pretty harsh words. This is a bunch of coworkers um, saying, what a nice girl, we're so sad she's gone, sympathizing for the family. You know family members are looking at this, and Stan483 has the audacity to come on and write this. Well, if you search her name at the Superior Court record site above, you see she has a history of speeding over 65, no insurance registration, driving over divided highways, and more. Sounds like a reckless, irresponsible person to me, and it's a good thing she's off the road. Doesn't matter all this fluff you're all saying about how she's a nice co-worker, etc., etc. She was a danger on the road, end quotes. That's heartless. I mean, I don't care if it's true. Um, I, I have a feeling it's very stretched, even if that is true, why say that? That is someone who sees the needy sheep, the paupers, and moves with condemnation for them. But that wasn't Jesus. Rather, Jesus pitied people in conditions like this. It was while Jesus was walking to a certain town, this is in Luke 9, he and his disciples observed a company of people moving their way, and there was a casket. Someone died. It was a young boy who died, or maybe, in the, it says young boy, but maybe more um, in the late teens. And it says that Jesus had compassion for the woman because she was a widow. She just lost the, her only hope, her son. She's now completely alone. Jesus had compassion for her. He went up, stopped 
the whole procession and said, boy, <laughs> rise out of the coffin. And he comes back to life. And everybody's amazed. That's the compassion of Jesus. See, what man would have done in that situation, seeing this widow weeping, just, you know what? If you would have been remarried, maybe you could have taken care of that boy and he wouldn't have died. Maybe if you fed him better, he would have lived longer. We look at people's problems and often associate their problem with their lack of ability to prevent the problem. And so we begin to condemn people for their situation and say, if you would have only done this, serves you right. That wasn't Jesus. He didn't question why they were at where they were. His heart broke for the position they were in regardless. And so Luke 9.13 says he had compassion on her, not condemnation. And when he sees these sheep scattered, reckless, harm, helpless, harassed sheep on the hillside, he says he has compassion for them. Notice he also did not have frustration with these people he saw, these crowds. I get frustrated with crowds. I get frustrated with people. They do things, they say things, they think things, they smell like things, and I just get frustrated. Especially you know, people that smoke. No offense if you do, but sometimes you just, you just get frustrated when they, when they bring it right next to you. Or um, they just... They've been raised in a less fortunate environment and they smell. Or they just have the wrong way of talking. They're very blunt. They don't have the sense of what's polite and proper etiquette. And we just get frustrated with people. When John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin and friend, died, of course he felt the sting of it. And so he and his disciples decided to get on the boat cross the Sea of Galilee, and get away from everyone to seek solitude. And when he gets to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, would you believe a massive crowd is waiting for Jesus? <laughs> you know the response of the disciples? Lord, send them away to find food. But not Jesus. In Matthew fourteen fourteen, when he sees them and gets off the boat, it says he had compassion for the people. Disciples are frustrated. We came here for solitude. It's late. They're hungry. Send them away. And me too. Ah, I'm trying to do a job here, people. Can't you see I'm reading? Don't talk to me. You're frustrated with people. But Jesus had compassion as he looked out at them. No soul is a burden to our Savior. No time is an inopportune time to visit him. He doesn't get frustrated with us. He has compassion for us. Notice also that it does not say that Jesus was moved with irritation for the crowd. No condemnation, no frustration, and no irritation. How easy it is for us to get irritated, especially as these people are crying from, crying from, like, leave me alone. I just dealt with you people. Matthew 20, Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. There are two blind people begging for Jesus' attention. Heal us, heal us. And it says that the crowds told the blind people to shut up. You're an irritation to us. But Jesus, Matthew 20, verse 34, had pity for them or compassion for them. And he asked them, what do you want me to do for you? That's his compassion. 
no irritation with Jesus. We can't irritate the king of compassion and the prince of pity. His arms are open for us. So when Jesus saw these crowds, he was not moved with condemnation, not with frustration, not with irritation, but with that grand word of compassion. And we see the difference of how I would react versus how Jesus reacts. He sees them and his heart moves out to them. I want to give them care. I am concerned for them. I want to help them. Seeing that we are people moved with condemnation, frustration, and irritation, far from Jesus who's moved with compassion, how is it that we, or how is it that Jesus was moved with compassion while we're on the other side being moved with all these anything but compassion feelings? How was it that Jesus saw them that way? Jesus saw them that way because he did not see their physical condition. He saw their spiritual condition. He was able to peel away the frustrating, irritating, condemning layers of our flesh and our problems and look past that and see the heart of the people. And he saw that they were harassed and helpless sheep without a shepherd. If I looked at the crowds in a human perspective, I would see sick, desperate people you don't want to be around, maybe contagious, needy, wanting to leech off of you all the time. That's what I would see. Keep them away. Let's try to go around Samaria or some other town like that. But Jesus sees sheep without a shepherd, harassed and helpless. That's how he can be moved with compassion. See, the enemy of compassion is to see people in their physical condition. The enemy of compassion is to see people in their physical condition. Like the city of Santa Barbara. They had, this was an article in the LA Times, um, it was called Clearing the Benches. And this is what Santa Barbara is up to. Santa Barbara officials hope downtown project will allow pedestrians to avoid encounters with the homeless. Cities have tried many ways to move panhandlers and vagrants out of prime shopping districts, but Santa Barbara believes it has a new angle, 90 degrees. Yes, using $50,000 in redevelopment funds, the city is planning to turn just 14 benches perpendicular to the state street so that they no longer face the storefronts. The idea is to make it more difficult for beggars to establish eye contact with passerbys, officials said. Quote, they'll be sitting with their backs to half of the people coming and going on the sidewalk, said Mark Aguilar, a supervisor for the city's redevelopment agency. Quote, they'll have half the potential contacts with the public, and it might not be financially beneficial for them, <laughs> you think. They're trying to make sure that nobody sees homeless people anymore because they're irritant, they're frustrating. And true, I, I mean, I, I share the sentiments. But see, that's the eyes of man. They see these raggedy, unshowered people begging for money, and we see the physical condition and say, we don't want that. So turn the benches away from us so that we, when we're shopping and spending luxury money, don't have to feel guilty that they have no money. So to see people in their physical condition is the enemy of compassion. You can't be moved with compassion if you limit a person to what you see and their problem. But that wasn't how Jesus did it. 
Rather, the eyes of compassion see people in their spiritual condition. He saw them as sheep without a shepherd, namely in two ways. First, he saw them as harassed. Sheep without a shepherd is a free in and out burger for a wolf or a bear or a lion. They have absolutely no defense for themselves. So Jesus sees these sheep without a shepherd. Therefore, he sees them as harassed. They are victims of religion. They are being eaten alive by their own sin. And they are on the mean end of people's lack of compassion. That's what he sees. They are victims of people and all sorts of systems and institutions. They're being eaten away. And their life is constantly harassed. And Jesus wants to protect them. You don't need to be harassed by the Pharisees in religion. You can come to me. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. Your sin that's eating you from the inside out, it doesn't have to be that way. I can heal you from your sin. That's how Jesus sees them. They were harassed. They were also helpless in that state, maybe half eaten by whatever it is that's been harassing them. They are laying, their souls are laying helpless. I've fallen and cannot get up. They can't get themselves up. They can't get themselves to pasture. They can't get themselves to water. And Jesus sees them as helpless and sees if I don't help them, they will never be helped. These sheep need a shepherd. And that's how I see them. And I think this is the challenge that Jesus wants us to do. Stop seeing physical condition and look past that to their spiritual condition and you'll see harassed people helpless people and you'll hurt and say they need a shepherd and i want to introduce them to the good shepherd so that's how jesus did it he saw people in their spiritual condition that's the compassion of jesus not condemning not frustrated not irritated but compassion because he sees sheep he sees people victimized and helpless. And I want to help them. That's his heart. Oh God, may that be our heart too. But it, it can be. It can be. And this is where the commission of Jesus for Christians comes in. We've seen his compassion for the crowds, now his commission for the Christian. And it is this in verse 37. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Jesus looks at the crowds and he doesn't see hearts too hard, hopeless, or hostile. He sees a harvest. And you can almost hear behind those words Disciples, look, the harvest is plentiful. And you can almost hear him just pointing to faces at them. Disciples, look, each face is a soul. There's a plentiful harvest out there. Pray that God sends people. Look how many they are. And it, the harvest truly is plentiful. I know I've shared here before the time that my brother was in Nepal hiking some of the foothills of the Himalayas with his friend. They were on a mission trip, and they had their guide take him up, and they were going up to those villages where, you know, they rare, you know they're rarely reached people, maybe, if not ever. And um, they saw one guy sitting out in front of his hut, 
And the guide asks, hey, have you, uh, do you know Jesus? And he looks puzzled for a minute. He thinks about it. And then he replies, yeah, I think he lives in the village up the road. And, and you know, that, that's silly. It's kind of funny. Like, how do you not know Jesus? But that's the sad reality of what is out there. The estimates are that 1.5 billion people have never heard the gospel. And Jesus said, the harvest is plentiful. And indeed it is. There is no lack of people that need his compassion. Yet, the problem is that the laborers are few. Line people up for anything, and they'll come. But line them up for the labor of the harvest. And Jesus says it's few. Line them up for a game of baseball. Here they come. Line them up for the Super Bowl party. Here they are. Line them up for a concert. Look at them come. Just like when the iPhone 4 just came out. Um, the, the first iPhone 4. Man, the response, the people that came, the people that lined up, yikes. When Apple released the iPhone 4, <laughs> they were not prepared for the overwhelming response they would receive. Hundreds of people lined up outside Apple stores. Some people even camped in parking lots to ensure they got one before they ran out. I say just wait a couple months, but... They had to stop taking, Apple had to stop taking pre-orders because they had too many. iPhone 4, look at them come. The laborers are not few. There they are, lined up blocks and blocks. And actually, if you go on YouTube and you see the lines, I, 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 no phone is that important to me. Nothing is that important to me. Especially when it's still available. Look, to this day, we have iPhones. Just go and get one without a line now. But when Jesus says, look, the harvest is plentiful. There are sheep without shepherd, harassed and helpless. The crickets chirp and a couple few come forward. He doesn't need lords, lovers of self, people delighted in glory and entertainment. He needs laborers. People who see the price of reaching those sheep, of reaping that harvest, and are willing to lay down self to get it done. The laborers indeed are few. Therefore, this is Jesus' instruction. Because the laborers are few, Christian, it's your job to pray that the Lord of the harvest, God, would send, put it on people's hearts to become laborers for the harvest. It is our commission to pray that laborers would rise up from Sunday night Bible study, that laborers would rise up at Church of the Woods, that laborers all over this mountain would rise up and go into the harvest. Now, (laughs) I can see the disciples at this point, and my logic is running and saying, okay, the harvest is plentiful. Laborers are few. You would think that Jesus would say, so disciples, get on your horse and go. He does say that later. Matthew 28, verse 19. Go therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations. 
But right now, Jesus doesn't tell them to go. Big harvest, few laborers, therefore, pray? Wouldn't it make more sense just to say, go, get going? You want us to pray. They're there. They're helpless. They're harassed. And you just want us to sit around and pray. Jesus, what is your logic behind this seemingly passive command? He wants us to go, sure. He says that in Matthew 28. But before we go, he wants us to pray. And when I think about it, as I think about my relations with people at my former job, and then this command to pray before you go, I connect it, and it makes sense. I think the reason he tells them to pray is because if I don't pray for the people, I won't go to the people. I'll choose instead to stay. The point is this, that unless the heart is infused with his compassion, the feet will refuse his commission. Unless my heart is infused with God's compassion, my feet will refuse his commission. I won't go unless I pray for the people so that I can care for the people. That's the point I think that Jesus says, pray for them. Because if you pray for them, the Father will infuse his compassion in you and you won't refuse the commission to go to them. Prayer for people will teach my heart to care for people. Passionate prayer, passionate prayer for people leads to compassionate care for people. Therefore, a prayerless heart is a careless heart. That's why we're to pray before we go. If you want to care for those people you're going to, the people you work with, the people in the stadium, the streets and the stores, a prayerless heart will be a careless heart. It'll be a heart of condemnation, a heart of frustration, a heart of irritation. Oh, but how when I pray passionately for people, cruelty turns into charity. Apathy turns into sympathy. And self-seeking turns into soul-seeking. That's the idea of pray. Therefore, disciples, pray for them. And pray that God sends laborers. And watch how your heart changes. So the point is that we become a laborer in compassionate prayer. The story of that girl's death who I worked with gripped me so painfully because what it was was a reflection of my lack of compassion for those people in the world. I worked with some, um, let's just put it this way, the language in movies is nothing compared to what I worked with. It's an R-rated movie every day at work. (laughs) Um, It's easy to get frustrated with those people. It's easy to condemn them. Ah, you're just sent to hell anyways. As as Dostoevsky wrote, devil take you. That's his (laughs) popular phrase. Um, it's, It's easy to become the attitude. 
But, you know, when someone just suddenly, they're in eternity, you, you're thinking, oh, they have time or whatever. I'll just, you know, just whatnot. Suddenly he's gone, and you realize my opportunity to have compassion is gone. And so the event became a reflection of my lack of care and concern and compassion for people. That's why it rocked me. Yes, there's a soul that is likely not in a very good place right now. Equally as horrendous is there's a soul right here that isn't beating like the heart of Jesus beat. I mean, okay, granted, you know, I'm an introverted person. I'm type B. I'm not going to be the initiator in a conversation. And she talked to me a lot at the beginning until I guess she found out what I did outside of that job at being a youth pastor, um, that I didn't party like she did. I, I think that kind of made her stop wanting to approach me. And, uh, you know, knowing my personality type, um, like I'm not going to condemn myself that I didn't get in her face every day. I don't think that's what Jesus would have wanted. But I am regretting that I didn't at least pray for her every day. At least pray. I mean, the rest, okay. You know, human weaknesses may be explainable. But when I look at my prayer life, that is inexcusable. There, there's no fear. I don't have to approach her in my prayer. I just simply lift her to God. And who knows how my heart would have, would have stopped condemning and judging and, and being frustrated and irritated with her. Maybe I would have been more able to, next time I heard her talk about her crazy party weekend, just maybe say, just ask her, like, just, just, what, what are you seeking in that? Who, just at least some sort of a care, because I gave a prayer for her, but I, I didn't even at least pray. So, so the commission for us to be compassionate laborers in prayer is this, at least pray. We know people, and how often are they on our prayers every single day? I, 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 so, Christians, at, at the very least, can we pray for people? Can we start seeing them as souls that have an eternal destiny? Can we at least take that first step of the commission to pray to the Lord to send laborers to the harvest? Pray passionately for them. Better, pray compassionately for them. That God would give you a heart for them and his heart to them. So I want to finish this morning. Five ways that we can become laborers in compassionate prayer. Five simple, I think, helpers that will just to jot down and say, yeah, these are just basic steps that I can join in the labor of the harvest by praying that God would send laborers to them, that God would change my heart for them, that I would stop seeing the physical condition and start seeing the spiritual condition. So five ways we can labor in compassionate prayer. Number one, recognize and treasure the compassion Jesus has for your own soul. Recognize that compassion he has for you and treasure it. I think we often don't care about souls because we are so numb to what he's done for us. 
I was reading the Pilgrim's Progress a couple nights ago. Um, I picked it back up probably like the seventh time I'm going through it. But I always get blessed by something in it. And it was just the very first page. Pilgrim's there with a huge burden on his back, which is his conscience of sin searing his heart. And he's crying out, what must I do? And he cannot, no matter what his family does, no matter what they feed him, no matter how long he sleeps, his conscience of his back, this sin weighing him down, he cannot escape it. And he's willing to do anything to get rid of that guilt. And it reminded me, when was the last time I remembered how worthy I am for hell? When's the last time I remember the burden of guilt I once had before Jesus and what he saved me from? To remember that and to cherish the compassion Jesus had for me will make me begin to see that I was no different than they were before he took the burden off my back. So recognize and treasure the compassion Jesus has for your own soul. Number two, choose to look past people's physical condition and into their suffering spiritual condition. Choose to look past their physical... Choose. This is about your willingness to do it. Choose to look past their physical condition and into their suffering spiritual condition. Begin to see it as it's really happening behind all the layers of the masquerade. It's there. They're suffering. They're sheep, harassed and helpless. Number three. Steer away from suffocating your compassion with seductive sins. Steer away from suffocating your compassion with seductive sins. You will not experience compassion for people if you're suffocating yourself with sin. Sin isolates us. Sin makes us selfish people. Sin makes us irritated and frustrated. It makes us start to look at other people's sin. So steer away from that suffocating sin. Number four, believe in and meditate upon the reality of hell. It's easier, especially in our day and age where universalism is winning the philosophical thoughts, not to think about hell. It's not nice, especially in light of recent books that have been written. But believe in it. Jesus said it. Meditate on it every now and then. Don't just, I don't like to think about hell. You're right, we don't like to think about it. Because it's real and it's terrible. terrible. So think about it. Believe it. And the compassion for souls will win. And then finally, number five. This is the most practical. Pray for people personally by name every day. You know them. Make your list and pray for them by name every day. Fifteen years and they're still not saved. Hey, my prayer for them is not just God save them. And that is, that is our ultimate prayer, yes. But my praying for them is working something into my heart at the same time. So don't give up. Pray for them personally, by name, every day. Something about, just, you know, yeah, Lord, all the people that don't know you, save them. 
No, but when you articulate the name, you think about them. And when you're before God, you're not going to be so harsh about their habits and lifestyles. Your heart's going to be God's heart when you think about those lifestyles. And next time you see them, you're going to have a different feeling towards them. Had I prayed for her, the one I worked with who died, by name every day, I may have got my nose out of the book while I was in line. And maybe even more open to a conversation every now and then. Yes, I'm not the talker, but she would have been maybe if I had the book closed. So we can, we can labor in compassionate prayer. And you know, it's not always easy. That's why Jesus called, pray for laborers. But to pray, the prince's passion for people will penetrate the pauper's heart. And I think we will then get the commission. So the reason we need to pray before going, or as we go too, is because unless his compassion infuses my heart, my feet will refuse his commission. I need his compassion to do his commission. So Father, I ask that you would begin to put your lost sheep on our hearts and that prayer would be made for them. That you would smash the unmoved mountain in our hearts, that you would melt the icy cold glacier, that you would cast out the hard stone and replace those frustrated, irritated, condemning feelings with your compassion. So now, in a moment of silence, let us offer up a couple of those names that we've been thinking about this morning to pray personally for them by name. So, Father, I just pray for Joey. I pray for Robbie. I pray for Brad. I pray for the Caulfields, just to keep it there for this morning. I pray for them, Father. Open their eyes. Soften their hearts. Let them see your glory. And for all those other names that you heard mentioned here this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. I want to close with um, that song we did, Power in the Blood. Um, as Brandon was sharing, you know, to be able to be what God wants us to be, salt and light in this world. Uh, this song, if you look at the verses, each one that we do, um, it states that it's in Christ that we can have that power to serve, to be bold, to be a witness, to say those few words and so forth. Um, so we want to do that one, then we'll close with our, uh, our prayer song. So. Would you be free from your burden of sin? There's power in the blood, power in the blood. Would you, over evil, a victory win? 
There's wonderful power in the blood. There is power, power. There's wonder working power in the blood of the land. There is power, power. There's wonder working power in the precious blood of the land. Would you be free from your passion and pride? There's power in the blood. Power in the blood, come for a cleansing to Calvary's tide. There's wonderful power in the blood. There is power, power, there's wonder working power in the blood of the Lamb. There is power, power, wonder working power in the precious blood of the Lamb. Would you be wider, much wider than snow? 